0: It is Wednesday, January the 25th, 2023. Welcome to episode 73 of Tome of the Slab Pitching with David Cohn. We talk pitching every single week with the five time World Series champ David Cohn, the research ace James Smythe, and myself Justin Shackle. Producer Dan Rourke is also with us, and we have a a brand new baseball hall of famer we're going to be talking about their pitching edition was made by the twins we need to discuss that as well we're also going to be talking with longtime Yankees beat reporter Sweeney Murdy who announced his departure from WFAN in New York last week but David right out of the gate we need to know like the level of concern that you have for your quarterback Patrick Mahomes and his uh, precious ankle as your Chiefs get ready for the AFC title game have you been squirming at all in recent days
1: Yes. Level of concern is relatively high. It's a high ankle sprain. So obviously, uh, you know, we, we don't know what that's going to look like. You know, the, the day of the injury and playing through, you know, speaking from experience as a pitcher, you know, as a, as a former pro player and obviously baseball different than football, but it's a lot easier to play through an injury on the day of the injury. When you, you notice he stood, he stood up the whole time during halftime. He, he just kept moving. He got taped on, but once you cut that tape off after the game, and then the next morning you wake up, that's when you really start to feel the injury set in. And that's what I'm worried about with Mahomes is how, how his progression goes this week. Does he have enough time to heal up? His mobility obviously will be compromised. And the Bengals looked awfully good as well. Joe Burrow is a team quarterback with a team that knocked him out last year. So yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly very concerned about him.
0: James, I'm not going to ask you about the giants. We're going to move forward uh right away here so uh whatever frustration you have there keep it to yourself um all right the opener guys (laughs) the hall of fame announcement made on uh, on tuesday we have one other former player going to be joining fred mcgriff in cooperstown this summer david your reaction to uh scott Rowland receiving just the right amount of votes to uh, gain induction here in 2023
1: yeah you know it's still (laughs) still remarkable to me that the Baseball Hall of Fame, more than any other sport, just continues to kind of evolve at a snail's pace. Uh, I certainly believe that Roland is very capable, certainly very deserving. Just snuck in just above uh, the threshold of 75%. Uh, I think Billy Wagner is probably going to get in eventually, too. I think when you look at the trends of of some of the other guys voting, the one probably big disappointment uh, is Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, you know, is, is a guy that probably deserves a little more consideration than he got based on his power numbers at second base. But it's still it's, it's still remarkable to me that it, it almost breaks demographically and in terms of age as far as the writers and the voters, the one the, the writers who have the votes, you know, the older generation, the fifty plus year old, still remain steadfast and and make that bar very high, and the younger generation of voters continue to push upward and kind of uh look, I think probably use more advanced metrics to, to, to evaluate players to assess judgments and, uh, slowly, but surely we're, we're seeing this kind of creep up and turn over and players get second looks, but it, it's a snail space. It really is. I still believe overall that the baseball hall, hall of fame is underrepresented by some of the best players that have ever played. And it's going to continue that way for the foreseeable future.
2: Well-deserved for Scott Rowland. Uh, I want to push back on some of the the criticism I've heard. Oh, the Hall of Fame's getting watered down, or you know, what's the deal with Scott Rowland? This guy was one of is one of the best offense defense combinations at third base in the history of the game. If you look at just his defense, I, he checks all the boxes. Eye test, web gems every night. The you know sort of old school sort of thinking. He has eight Gold Gloves, fourth all time behind Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt, and Nolan Arenado, and then. Some of the newer metrics, fielding runs, which is the, the defensive component of war, he's third all-time at third base behind Brooks Robinson and Adrian Beltre. And his war of 70 is top 10 all-time at third base. And just as, to take a little bit of a, a further step back, Kony, you talk about you know errors being underrepresented. The myth of the Hall of Fame getting watered down or that there's lower-quality players uh, getting in the the standards are getting have been getting stricter not looser so if you look at guys to get 5000 plate appearances or 2000 innings for pitchers guys who generally you, know, you talk about you know a 10 year career what have you the rate of players who got in who debuted before 1960 the old veterans committee guys the early days of the hall of fame you talk about about a quarter of all of those players get into the hall of fame now it's around 10% of that same group. So talk about some of the great players from, you know, the eighties and the nineties and, and they've been getting a uh, short shrift. And, you know, maybe that starts to balance out over time. Uh, Konya brought up uh, Jeff Kent, who was definitely a victim of a bit of a ballot crunch over the last 10 years. Um, the, the crowded ballots we've had, you look at 2013 for one example, which was a shutout, but you had 10 hall of famers, on there plus bonds and clemens and chilling guys who didn't get in kent had a nice jump though this year it's his last it was his last year on the ballot he jumped from 33 percent to 47 so i think he's going to be well positioned for a veterans committee similar to fred mcgriff this past year uh, who had a good jump in his in his final year but uh, scott Rowland just getting over the line it's too bad that todd helton just missed but he was 11 votes short he should get in next year billy wagner jumping from 51 percent to 68 he's well positioned for next year uh good jumps for andrew jones and gary sheffield and uh we'll see how they do next year uh but they will be joined by three newcomers who will be making noise uh adrian beltray i think we could agree is a first ballot guy uh joe mauer one of the best catchers of all time and chase utley an underrated player who uh, will probably be getting some love come uh, Hall
0: of Fame season next year I think like Chase Utley is going to be like the epitome of the state of the voting that we're in right now the era that that in in just the middle of the road uh, situation I guess we find ourselves in like David was talking about you have two different factions of of voting groups and I think Chase Utley is going to demonstrate where exactly we're at with that but yeah like Jeff Kent I think in four years it's going to take like the veterans committee all of 10 minutes to be like, okay, yeah. Slam dunk choice. And, and it's like uh, this guy like wasted 10 years on the ballot. Again, he's going to be in the same situation as a, as Fred McGriff was here, but yeah, I'm, I'm the, the, like the biggest takeaway for me in all this is like hearing the genuine disappointment from people that, that someone was elected to the baseball hall of fame. It's just weird to me. Um, the the whole thing is such a, a twisted system right now. Where we're at with the the voting criteria, it has like all of my feelings going in in every direction. So like I'm I'm indifferent on a lot of this, but I just think I've I've become more focused on like the performance based merits. Um, I, I've had like a lot of discussion fatigue around this because. It's just all over the map. But yeah, overall, like immediately after the announcement was made, seeing like the genuine, again, disappointment and the criticism of someone being elected to something is remarkable to me. And you talk about being underrepresented. Again, he's only the 18th third baseman. It's going to be in Cooperstown James rattled off a list of reasons in terms of stats why he should be in the Hall of Fame I think Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer um you know on the surface like you mentioned top 10 in war among third basemen had the fourth highest amount of gold glove wins as a third baseman he's a guy that grew up in the era that uh you know kind of shaped my baseball adolescence yeah I thought of Scott Rowland as at the at a time and a good chunk of years as the best third baseman in the game that's enough for me there but I mean where are we at with having like disappointment obviously you have a place to voice that disappointment that's a whole nother matter but like a a guy just achieved baseball immortality. whether or not you want to have the debate whether it's right or wrong like you're you're finding a way to trash that person for gaining entry into Cooperstown come on agreed
1: well said well said on both your parts I could not agree more I echo exactly both of your sentiments there and you know, the game's been around over a hundred years. So you're the top ten of all time in your position. I mean, it's it's it shouldn't be that hard. This, this isn't uh, this isn't algebra. This this yeah. is uh, you know this is this is pretty easy. You know, this guy's a top 10 third baseman, obviously deserving.
0: Are looking ahead to uh, the twenty twenty three season and a trade that went down late last week. Twins and Marlins making a trade. Pablo Lopez was. I guess the pitcher, the starting pitcher that had most uh, been involved in trade discussions this offseason, he's finally dealt. He's traded to Minnesota, and they get him for for Luis Arias, and there are prospects heading back to Minnesota. But let's just focus on Pablo Lopez here, again, pitching podcast. Uh, how how would you guys characterize the starting rotation in Minnesota after this deal?
1: Wow, Eder? Yeah. Go ahead, James. Go ahead. Lead <laughs> no, us off. That's,
2: no, that's it. Just uh, they improved. I love the idea of this trade, a challenge trade Two, you know, established big leaguers getting traded for each other. One team needs a bat. One team needs an arm. It's fun to see these come together.
1: You know, it is, it's a good matchup. You know, the buzzword among a lot of GMs now is contact, right? We need more contact in our lineup. That's one of the reasons why the Yankees traded for, for Benintendi last year to play left field. You know, we need a contact hitter. We've heard Hal Steinbrenner talk about that in reference to, we need more contact in our lineup. Obviously, Luis Arias is maybe one of the best contact hitters in the game. Uh, he puts his bat on the ball as well as anybody. But when you talk about matchup of needs, Miami had a surplus of pitchers. They dealt within their surplus. Pablo Lopez is great. He's going to fit right in with Sonny Gray and Joe Ryan. Who and, and who knows what happens on the back end of the Minnesota rotation can Kinta Maeda come back and be anything close to what he was when he was fully healthy? Uh, it, it, it does. It seems to be a really good old fashioned match now, where, where, where needs were matched up. That's the ideal trade. If, if I were a general manager or an owner of a major league baseball team, that's the kind of trade you love. You know, I, even though people secretly might wish to, to get over on somebody and make, make the steal of a trade. I think uh, ideally what you want is develop good relationships. Uh, both teams win, both teams get their needs served. And therefore, you, you maintain that good working relationship for trades in the future. That That's the way I would look at it. Um, so I think this has the potential to be that type of trade where both teams got what they needed. And, uh, you know, hopefully they both stay healthy and they both work out and give them what they want.
0: You mentioned Joe Ryan, Sonny Gray. Like, to me, Pablo Lopez is in – he fits in that same tier of guys like Gray and Ryan. They have Tyler Molly and and, and and Kent and Maeda at the back end. Like, it's a, it's a very – steady rotation but I think in order for the Twins to get to where they want to be more than one of those guys needs to exceed expectations in, in 2023 like I felt all along the Twins needed to bring in an ace or or a starting pitcher that was like a tier above of some of the names that we, we talked about that are in the rotation just to get them past Cleveland in that division and Again, Lopez was the guy that was on the trading block that we heard about the most. So maybe that pitcher, that's like a tier above, isn't out there to acquire via trade. But this this move, like, does it make them better? Yeah, I guess makes them better, but marginally. So uh, you know, if everyone's healthy, I think it's a it's a very steady rotation. I think they you know they needed to to kind of go over the top. Maybe that guy's not out there. So um, yeah, they got better but I I think marginally here um, really quick before we get to our chat with Sweeney Murdy guys, do, do you think that there is another impact starting pitcher that's on the trading block at this moment?
1: Well, I think all eyes are always going to be on the Brewers in Milwaukee because of the talent they have there and the surplus value they have there and their model of kind of turning over players when they reach a certain level of, of payroll. So uh, yeah, everybody's kind of looking, looking there at Milwaukee right now. Uh, I don't know if any of other pitchers are on the block, but I know there's a lot of general managers asking the brewers about, about their pitching and, you know, whether it's Woodruff or, or, you know, any, any of the other great pitchers they have there, they, they might have an arm to be had there it kind of depends on uh, matching up needs and matching up exactly what Milwaukee's looking for and what the asking price is and the asking prices at this time of year before the season are really high so it takes us right to the trade deadline as well but a lot of times these the framework for these deals are made now in the offseason and they might not happen until the trade deadline uh, you know the Pablo Lopez trade as you mentioned before that's some that's a name we've been hearing about for over a year mm-hmm. and so the groundwork for a lot of organizations was laid till finally the the needs were matched up and the trigger was pulled
2: you might be the best starting pitcher that gets moved before opening day but as Coney alluded to you know don't rule anything out by the trade deadline we're only three weeks out from spring training so at what point the team say we're going to roll with what we have for now and then cross that bridge when we get to it
0: all right let's get to our talk with sweeney here uh for those who don't know sweeney murty uh and he's known around major league baseball but he he covered the yankees for the last 20 plus years or so last week uh he he announced after 30 years that he was leaving wfan in new york city which uh wfan is the 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 standard for sports radio is the first ever sports talk station 24 7 in the country back in 1987 and for for many sweeney Murdy kind of represented the last uh vestige of the, in an old era at, at wfan so his news and again like we said uh amazing individual terrific personality and Known and received warmly, not just in in the Yankees universe, but but around the sport. So, thought it was uh, really important and uh, a great time to have him on here just to discuss what 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 has changed, um, what he sees himself doing in the future, and overall the state of media in in Major League Baseball. So, uh, our guest this week, a of the slab pitching with David Cohn. It is. Sweeney Murdy. Sweeney, thanks so much for, for joining us this week. And uh, last week, in a interesting way, I think I think you received a, a great reminder how much you mean to a lot of people in this industry, what, what type of impact you've made uh, in this little circle of the world here. But you revealed last Friday that after 30 years, uh, your time at WFAN had come to an end what were your emotions like as you were trying to pen that message
3: um it was it, it wasn't easy you know i um i went through a lot of different things and i mean listen i i had known that you know kind of like how how it was moving and and how we got there so i had some time personally to deal with it but once you know once he hit send and you you tell them the rest of the world it's um you know it's it's a little overwhelming, and you know I'll be honest I didn't see uh, any of the social media stuff for over a day. I kind of stayed away from it. I, um, you know I I was listen I was really blessed. I had people texting me, and I was I I'd, it took me so much time to return all the personal messages to me from like friends and family and colleagues that I didn't get to all the social media stuff until a day later. It was, and you know I had an event on Friday um so that took me uh, out of out of the loop a little bit too and it was it was a little overwhelming you know and you just kind of do what you do and like i think we all feel it and are probably in our everyday jobs and i kind of related it to athletes that david can relate to as well and that you you kind of you get through the day and say wow i tricked him today you know and and then you wake up and say boy i gotta trick them all over again today and and it's about survival right and before you know it you've you've won almost 200 games or you've worked almost 30 years and you've you just you know all of a sudden you're like wow how did i get here and that's kind of what happened to me and you guys were among the people who shared some nice thoughts and messages with me and um i, I if i didn't respond to everybody i you know i saw it all uh very touched by it and um uh, you know i don't i don't know exactly what's coming up but um you know, it was it was a hell of a ride for a kid from, you know, Middletown, Pennsylvania, um, just landing in in New York and wondering if I could make it here for a day or a week or a month. And and, you know, kind of uh, kind of getting through it all.
0: if 30 years at WFAN, you, you covered the Yankees for 20 plus years. And David, I know. Sweeney's time with the Yankees and your time with the Yankees as a player, like it didn't exactly cross past there. You were. uh you were you've moved on after after two thousand eventually retired but you obviously have built up a relationship uh with Sweeney over the last you know couple decades here from a player's perspective what is like endearing about the way Sweeney goes about his business as a member of the media
1: well I, I just think there's a there's enough you know, an authenticity and a, a sincereness to Sweeney that really comes off. And I think everybody who's been around Sweeney understands that and sees that. And anybody who's listened to him over the years kind of feels that as well, whether you're a fan who's never met him or if you're an ex-player who, who actually worked with him. But kind of a funny story going back to the beginning. I know that I'd like to rehash a little bit of Sweeney's uh, career here. because We did. We I'm, did have a few interactions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, when I when I first heard about Sweeney Murty, I was you know I heard about you know hey there's this new guy coming in. he wants to do an interview with you and I think it was my my agent Andrew Levy told me about Sweeney or, or sort of you know prepped me for it and I said oh great they get good Irish guy come on let me do this interview with this Irish guy Sweeney and find out Sweeney Sweeney murty shows up I'm like hey are you Irish <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> So that was we just had, kind of, well, kind of there,
3: funny start. Like, well, I had like my career began at FAN as a producer in 93, which meant, you know, working phones and getting guys on the shows. That's how I got connected with Andrew. That's how I got connected with David and working through the 93, 94, 95 seasons and all the labor stuff, David was out front in all of it. He was so gracious always. Like I would, before I even knew who he was, David was always so good with the media and FAN that I, you know, the first time I ever called, I just called blindly saying, Sweeney Murdy from WFAN. It's like, oh yeah, sure. Nice Irish kid, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him at that point. <laughs> I, I didn't until I started working some clubhouses in I think 95, I started doing some part-time work, filling in for Susan Waldman on weekends, um, covering clubhouses and doing some stuff. Um, and I think David came in with Toronto uh, in 95 and I um, I made my way over to that clubhouse and, and introduced myself to him after one of the games I said I, I said, sorry I'm not Irish and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, after all these phone calls I'm like he knows me he's great but I don't think he knows the whole thing <laughs> yeah pulled over and I got a few interactions with him that way again still producing for all the shows you know, some Mike and the Mad dog shows I produced that David was working with me on and um yeah he was you know he was always great to do he was he he was one of the easy ones by far as I'm sure you know and everybody has told you along the way
1: You know, Sweeney, I kind of ask this question to a lot of our guests, but especially ones with your experience level. Um, You know, it's a very simple, low hanging fruit kind of a question, but it's sort of, you know, you've dealt with the players for 30 years. You've dealt with everybody in this industry. Some of the biggest changes you've seen, not only in the game itself, but the players, maybe the sensitivity of the current day players compared to players of the past or just some of your impressions and your 30 years of experience in dealing with players in the clubhouses.
3: I think everyone's gotten a little more guarded and and for good reason, I think, because, you know, you and listen, we all know how social media changed everything and how players of your generation kind of look at it and say, wow, I, I couldn't have gotten away with, you know, a, a quarter of the stuff I did if I knew that everybody was was watching me or clicking me with their phones or doing whatever Um, You know, like Jeter said it last year and like, you know, example of it and, and you're a great example of it. I think I just think there's a there is a different sensitivity, but I don't I don't mean that as a negative. You know, I think there's just there's just so much happening that can affect you. You have to be a little more protective of yourself, of your family, of your of your vocation, of everything like that. And sometimes people don't get it like they'll they'll stray too far and they have to deal with repercussions. And then then they'll get it. Um, I think back in, you know, during your playing days, you know, WFAN was the original social media, right? Like we were where you went to hear all the, um, hear all the instant reaction. I and mean, think about this way, you know, social media like thrives on negative reactions most of the time, right? You're, 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 you're piling on whatever, whatever story is that's our station thrived on that too. Like if you did poorly, you heard more about it than if you, if you did well, um, so I think we were kind of the the forerunners for that. And you kind of gauged public reaction, like, oh, you know, that was a that was a different way of going about it, but it's just kind of graduated to the point where people have to be a lot more aware of it. Um and yeah, and I also think too, like it's harder to get to know players because of all that. It's also harder to get to know players because our, our time is less. We spend less time around them, uh, less time in the field, in the clubhouses, less time on the road. And, you know, like you used to I, I walked into a hotel bar one time and David's there with, you know, 15 other guys. That's not happening anymore. Right. You're all off on your own where where we can't see you. Um, and, um, you know, a funny story. I remember going out one time. David had already retired, but I remember going out one time um, in Tampa, St. Pete. And I ran into uh, David and Boomer at an establishment, right? And there were about a dozen other players there. And they all kind of like heads swiveled. When I walked in, I'm like, guys, don't worry, I'm here for the same reason you are, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's cool. And then, but the one person like they all kind of ran away. And the one player came over to me and my group of uh, people was David. And he's like, hey, guys, how you doing? Like like he was welcoming us and everyone else didn't didn't even want to see us there. And I still remember one of us asked you, hey, you know, 15 years ago, back in the day, how many of your guys would have been at a, at a place like that? He goes, all of us, All like 20, 25 of us would have been there. And that's clearly different. And it's, you know, and just the idea, it's been harder to get to know players on a personal level the same way for all those reasons, and because I'm twice their age now too.
0: (laughs) At the same time, like observing you work the clubhouse each day, uh, especially like the last few seasons, I feel like uh, your approach has probably had to change, yet I think you continue to get results. So like how, how do you map out your approach in this day and age to kind of break that barrier? With the obstacle of accessibility not being what it was, I mean,
3: I guess one of the things that I've had kind of the freedom with um, during my time at Fan was that I, I wasn't necessarily locked in today. Today, I have to produce this story and this particular thing, and and uh, a lot of writers have to go in and make sure they have their ideas and stories locked in and have something uh, ready to shoot out. You know, very early in the day. I felt like I could be a little bit more reactionary or kind of just, you know, seek out what I wanted to seek out and kind of bank stuff to to use at at the various times I'm on the air. Um, So I, I always just felt like I wanted to walk around the room and just let everybody see me that I was there. And even if it's not for a specific, hey, I need to talk to you about this, just share, just talk to them and find different ways of connecting to them and talking to them. And it's not something that's easy to do, and I don't think it's something you can you can really generate too quickly. I think that's that's hard to do sometimes when new players arrive because we all want to get our face in front of them and try to get to know them and try to get to know them on a personal level and try to figure out what our in is, especially with a new star player. And I guess I've always I always kind of had like a long game in mind like my first year on, on the beat was 2001. I was walking into a, a room that had superstars and, you know, three-time defending world series champions. I mean, these are, these are the poster boys and the cover boys of everything related to baseball. I wasn't going to go in there and just become, you know, Derek Jeter's best friend and Bernie Williams, best friend and Paul O'Neill's best friend. Like I, I needed to, I, I needed to kind of play that out. So I guess, I don't know. I didn't consciously do this, but I guess the way it played out was I, I just wanted to go do my job every day, and by doing my job every day, I could, I just showed up, right? And the the more you see me, the more you get to know me, and you know, it just became, oh, he's back today. Oh, he's here today. Oh, I guess this guy's not going away. Maybe I'll talk. You know, get to know him. And I, I just kind of, the more it went on, the more I guess I realized in hindsight that. I showed people how I wanted to do my job just by doing it every day and by being there every day. And whether it's just small talk uh, about something that, you know, you know, you walked in, you're wearing a certain kind of shirt or you, you know, you have a, there's a certain movie, TV show, music, whatever, or something about last night's game that was kind of funny or kind of cool. Like the more you, the, the more you kind of just played it out over a long period of time, I just felt like that's, you know, that's how I just went about it. And um, it didn't need to be confrontational. It didn't need to be um, anything that was uh, negative all the time or controversial. It, it was just, we're in the same space you are. And we're in the same space you are every day. And the more you see me, the more you understand what my ambitions, goals, and and, and whatever my, um, uh, whatever my things are here, um, I just want to talk about this or that, and take two minutes, five minutes, whatever it is, and I'll move on, and we'll we'll come back and do it again tomorrow. You know, I my old news director in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right before I moved to New York, gave me a couple of pieces of advice, and one of them was, "Listen, it's only radio. If you screw it up, just come back and do it again tomorrow." (laughs) And I've never forgotten it, and I kind of just feel like. That's how I had to go about my day. Just get through today. Let's just do it. If you screw something, like if you get it done, great. If you screw it up, just come back and do it again tomorrow. And when I showed up the next day, you know, O'Neill had no choice but to try to talk to me again. Mm-hmm. You no, know, Knobloch had no choice, but to talk to me again and things like that.
0: It's interesting. Cause I think like David approaches you from like what, what he sees at the ballpark myself, like I'm, really intrigued about your perspective on like the business of radio right now with baseball like what is baseball's place on the radio in this day and age like from your perspective what has I I think you mentioned you know you alluded to social media being a big factor in your role changing in this day and age but like what what are those big factors behind the scenes that we don't see that has kind of led to the state we're at with baseball on the radio you think
3: yeah, I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think people are just consuming things in different ways. And obviously, there, are, you know, we used to be the only thing you could take with you, like your TV used to be this giant piece of furniture that you couldn't take from place to place, right. So now, this becomes, you know, it's a game changer, you can, there are ways to go do those things. But we're still, you know, I think we're still so we're still the thing that you can focus your attention on doing other things and still have us on and we're the, the background soundtrack. Um, there's a lot of things different about the business for sure, but you know, we haven't gone away. I just think, I I just think radio has had a hard time trying to figure out how to take all these next steps forward because things change so quickly and technology changed so quickly and people's habits, but you know, You still can't watch TV while you're driving, you know, and you still, you know, I guess you can download some shows on Netflix, but when you're commuting or when you're doing other things, it's still hard to keep your eyes focused on something. Your ears are open while you're doing other things. And it's still what makes radio great. And, uh, you know, I I, I said this the other day, somebody, one of the greatest compliments I, I ever received from somebody was that when you hear fans tell me, I was I was in my car when you were talking to Mike and the Mad Dog or whoever, and I got to where I was going. I pulled up into my driveway, but I didn't get out of my car. I had to keep listening to the end of that, and I had to, or I pulled into the garage and like I stayed in my car for ten minutes until you were done. Like, like they wanted to hear the rest of that. That means we were making good radio. That means we were providing, you know, Justin. What you're talking about is like we're making, we're trying to make that connection with a listener. That's what they were illustrating to me. That we, you know, whatever show we were doing, whatever we were doing, made that connection because they couldn't go on with the rest of their life. They had to sit in the car, you know, by choice, and and listen to the rest of that. And it was one of the. It's one of the most wonderful compliments I've ever heard from people.
2: Baseball and the radio. That's the best combination compared to any other sport, right? And there, there's the nostalgia element if that's how it, the game was first transmitted, but also it's the companion with you all summer long. And you've mentioned how you're able to take it with you. You're in the car, you're at the beach, you're running errands or you're you're in the garage or whatever. And baseball on the radio is such a big part of what connects people to the game.
3: Yeah, and I think, James, like a, a real good example of that is John and Susan, because if you listen to a game, it's it's just a conversation, you know? And I think, you know, the TV element is obviously like everything is visual right um and you want to see it but it's based off of a lot of things of let's look at this let's look at that let's look at this in on the radio it's just two people talking to you and telling you what's happening and as the act and baseball is perfect for it you know as the action has you know highs and lows and lulls you just you just talk and sometimes it's sometimes it's like intricate stuff about the game and sometimes it's just stuff you're sitting around and maybe wondering because at the dinner table or wherever, wherever you are, it's, it's that kind of conversation that really does kind of carry it. And it's, it's possible to do on TV and David, you and Michael and Pauly, when you're together, like those kinds of things happen, but it's i feel it's just easier on the radio because you're not bound by the picture in front of you to for what you're talking about it's just an easy thing to to have and it just i think the ultimate goal is to just feel like you're sitting at a game or or sitting somewhere with two people just like conversing with you like and they you feel like they've they've let you in and 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 you've let yourself in if that makes sense
1: yeah, you know, you know, Swinney, from a reporter standpoint, and I've always been intrigued by this, you kind of, you kind of found that balance between taking the long view and understanding that you're going to be there day in and day out and develop these relationships and the trust with the players and front office staff, Brian Cashman, people you cover, but at the same time, push it back too when you had to, when you needed to, second guessing Brian Cashman or Aaron Boone in a postgame uh, press conference. Um, how do you, you know for younger reporters out there get just getting started? How do you how do you did you strike that balance? How do you find that that sort of middle ground? I I think part of
3: it was was understanding that long game to begin with, David. Because I, I I remember you know uh, very early in my career actually a, a short stint that did in Philadelphia. It sticks out to me. Terry Francona is a Phillies manager, and I remember some young kid was you know set, he, he he just blurted out why did you make this move in the seventh inning and you know Frank Cohen had you know he's just he saw a kid he said well you, because I, because that's what I that's what I wanted to do and he stopped and that was the answer and I'm like there's nothing And it, and it it felt like that kid was kind of trying to be a fan and being a little confrontational and didn't understand how to nuance it like it's I I think what I always try to do is I just tried to show the respect of, I know you know more about this than I do. That's why I'm the one asking the question, not making the move, right? Like I know that there are 50 different things that go into knowing what you do and the reasons behind it. I might only know 10 of them. So you, you have the upper hand help me understand, help me explain. And I don't, you know, I, I, I never tried to make it like, I know more than you do. And, you know, you're an idiot for doing it this way. Like, I always just wanted to, I, 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 the answer is more important than the question. So like how you ask it has to reflect that. And I never wanted to, it wasn't about me asking the question. I didn't want to be the tough guy throwing see, blah, 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 and then have, you know, the goal isn't to have the guys, you know, stammer and, you know, backpedal. And, you know, the goal is, is to just get an answer, a good answer that that we want, that fans want, that everybody wants to hear to help us understand it more. You know that part's gotten harder because everybody's trying to keep secrets between analytics and everything else. It's gotten harder for people to reveal the kinds of things that go into those things. But I never wanted to make it about, look at me asking a tough guy question. I, I always, in my head, David, when I'm standing in front of you, holding a microphone in front of your locker or in the manager's office, wherever, I know the emotions are running high. We're talking to you 10 minutes after the game ended, right? Like that's that's not an easy place to be. And I I think you have to understand the you know the emotional component of that. So I'm I'm constantly in my head, the question I want to ask is swirling around five different ways, 10 different ways, 20 different. Like the wording has to be right so that I can get the right answer, not. Not, hey, look at me, I'm asking you this tough guy question. I just, I need to figure out the best way I can word it possibly so that you understand I know what's happening and I just want you to explain it to me.
0: It's so true because Sweeney knows like if that interview subject catches you uh, not wording something right by like one word they're going to take advantage of that and they're going to, you know, they're not, you're not going to get the answer. I don't want to say you're not going to get the answer you want, but they, it's it's almost like a chess match now. And part of that's a little frustrating because they, you see what they're trying to do and vice versa. Like, why can't you just kind of be real with, with me? Also,
3: Justin, you can like, I, I I was able to get away with that later because when you're there every day, you build that relationship mm-hmm. and you might flub it. Or, or I, I tell, I, I told David Wells this a long time ago because he used to get, you know, upset about different things. And I said, I said, David, we don't always ask great questions. I, I'll admit that. But you don't strike everybody out. You know, it's like there's, you know, we we make mistakes, too, along the way. And if, if we admit it, great. Um, but I think to your point, Justin, is that if if I was if I asked David Cohn a, a certain kind of question and it's the first day I'd ever seen him, or he knows because he's savvy enough to look around. He knows that I've only been here a short while. He might react differently to it than if he's known me for the last ten years. And I just think there's a you know you learn to have a little bit of that give and take. Um, but I, I you know I I I will readily admit that every question doesn't come perfectly out of my mouth. I'm trying, but it's the same. You know, it's the same. Like you're David, you're trying to figure out how to throw that perfect pitch every time. Sometimes you hang it. I same thing happens to us.
2: You're just have to trying to establish that. how that you're being fair and yeah. that you want to express that. Hey, I'm not a bomb thrower, I'm not trying to make you look bad. We're yeah. all just trying to do our jobs.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and it's like, you know, you th- that's really all it is, you know. And and I know there's not a great way to You have to be a little delicate sometimes when, like I said, the emotions of a guy gives up a game-winning hit or makes a bad error or he just has a bad game and it's an important spot. You know, we're not trying to hang him out there. We're just, you know, we are just trying to do our jobs. And unfortunately, there is a time limit on this. It's 10 minutes after the game, and this is when we have to do it. And you don't have you don't have the opportunity to completely cool off, go home, go to sleep, sleep on it. But what I do find is that. After that initial stuff, sometimes a lot. What I really like to do, because this is an everyday job, I do like to go up to people the next day, and be able to to talk to them about something maybe smaller that wasn't part of the bigger story, or just you know let that person have a little bit more of a you know let them sleep it off and figure out how. How it played out for them emotionally, because they're probably going to react to it a lot differently the next day. And if there's some play in the game that I want to ask them about, or a pitcher sequence, or just being able to, you know, and just a weird example that pops into my head, like like I remember talking to Adam Ottavino one time when he was having trouble with just like he was going through a little spate where he was walking guys, and that's a hard thing to do right after a game. And the next day he was so, he was open to talking about it. And I had like a 15 minute conversation about it. Like, and it was really just the, the end to me was like, Adam, do the walks bother you? And if I had asked him that at 10 o'clock at night, after, you know, losing a game or something, I might've gotten a lot different response, but the next day, like he, he understands it's something he's trying to fix too. And it led to a conversation about what you're trying to do. And, And I think that's kind of what I appreciate about these guys. Like, like once you, once you establish like where you're coming from, I I think you, you get better answers and and you can inform your audience better that way.
0: Sweeney, what do you want to do next?
3: I don't know yet, Justin. I really don't. Um, I, I, listen, I got really lucky, you know, I, I grew up in a place where there was a radio station in my school when I was in seventh grade, and I caught the bug and I started, you know, I was playing records and reading news and doing sports. And all of a sudden, by eighth and ninth grade, I'm broadcasting football and basketball games and recognizing that wow, okay, I, I love baseball, have since I was little. And now I'm doing something right where I'm where I feel like I'm kind of good at this and maybe can continue. And I, I pushed it, I pushed it forward as far as I could. I, I you know, I, I was able to work at the biggest radio station in the biggest city and I um I covered the biggest team. Uh I I would have loved to have let that continue on as long as I possibly could. Um you know, I kind of, I kind of love having this same little, small connection. I'm not gonna, I'm not comparing myself to you guys for sure. But David, like, you know, you're coming from KC and go to the big, you know, playing backyard wiffle ball. Go to the big leagues. You know, Mike Messina talked about, you know, he always felt like he was this kid playing wiffle ball who, who ended up just getting to do you know, Derek Jeter, kid from Kalamazoo, dreaming of being a Yankee shortstop. I have some of that same part element to my story. Uh, just on a much different scale. Um, So I I got to do that part. And I hope some of that is still in front of me, but I don't really know. So, um, you know, I just feel fortunate that I was, you know, people let me keep talking about baseball. And at some point, let me feel like I knew what I was doing. And like I said, it goes back to thinking about, wow, I I feel like I was fooling them uh, for the first day, the second day, the third day. And you wake up, and 30 years later, it's like, holy cow, this is where you are. And um, I've been fortunate enough to just be able to do it. I hope I hope there's something about about it that I still get to do. Um, it's um, It's been a good way to make a living and and live my life.
0: All right, let's end this with some laughter, Sweeney. Um, 30 years at WFAN. Your the the funniest moment that sticks out to you with. Mike and Chris I'm like in the mad dog funniest moment with John and Susan
3: um boy Mike and Chris a couple of things stick out to me I knew I was there to be yelled at right like and it was fine I accepted that because like I report to them here's what Joe Torrey said here's what Brian Cashman said and they're screaming at me I'm like it's fine like we're making good radio okay and, and I understood that part about it. Um, I do remember like there was one instance where I got them, we were doing a locker cleanout day after one of the playoff series. And um, they you know I got annoyed at something they said the day before. So we had something on the air and, and Chris actually apologized to me. And we we're talking about camping out the stadium, uh, waiting for players to show up and talk to them. And uh, he said, well, like, like they feed you, right? I'm like, Uh, no no it's like we're just kind of hanging out waiting i said you know i said you know you guys make a lot of friends here if you send some pizzas over here like oh yeah i remember this like an hour later like yeah you were listening right like an hour later like 10 pizzas show up you know sodas everything mike and chris paid for all of it local pizza spot and um i said i remember i said to you know because the rest of the uh, the media core was there. I said, listen, if you guys are able to send some pieces over here, the writers here won't say a, a bad word about you for at least a day or two. I guarantee it. Um, and you know, that was kind of fun. And I, you know, the other one is just with Mike. I remember the off day between games five and six in the 2009 world series, Mike was starting to panic, right? The Yankees lost game five. A couple of guys out of the bullpen didn't perform as well. And the Yankees are up three games to two coming home for game six and Mike's in he really is in full blown panic mode. He's telling me that Mariano Rivera has to pitch three innings in game six, get get through the six, and the seven, eight, nine. Mariano nine outs and going, Mike, this is a little insane. They're still they're still ahead in this series. You can't blow them out for three innings. And if you lose that game, expect to have them for game seven. And we went on for like 45 minutes and my phone was blowing up from people who were listening. Like I was on a landline and I had my phone next to me and friends of mine in the business who were listening, you know, um, with some insight into what was happening, were texting me information to throw at Mike as I was going back and forth at him. Uh, And that part was really cool. Uh, It was a fun conversation. And you know the Yankees win the next day Mariano threw like 40 something pitches in game six to close it out if they lose you know I'm I'm looking kind of good in my argument um to 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 coming back in in game seven we'll see they won it was actually one of the you know it was the only time I ever covered a world series winning locker room and it was it was really cool to walk around everybody and just kind of you know not celebrating but shake their hand and say congratulations because like we were in the room in February 10th or whatever it was. And now we're in the room on November 3rd or whatever it was. And I know the journey and how hard it is. I know what the job is. And you kind of live it every day. You see what goes into it. And it was cool to see people celebrating the reward of that. And I appreciated that. John and Susan, it's just like, I don't know that I have a funny, funny moment. It's just uh, that pops into my head. It's just that, like, I know that, like, I I get to work with hall of famers, you know, like it's crazy. And whether it's Mike and the mad dog or whether it's John and Susan, like I, I know um, who I'm in the room with. And like, I've said this for many years, Justin, I said, I know that when you work at WFAN and you're working on the Yankee broadcasts, like there are Jeter's and Rivera's and there are those kinds of people there. I am quite satisfied with my role as Luis Soho. I can – because people needed Louie too, and everybody loved Louie, and it was just fine to to fill in and do my job every once in a while.
1: Do, do you have a John Sterling impersonation? I mean, you can break it out right here. We'll give you, we'll give you a okay. shot.
3: I don't know, David. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty hard to do John Sterling. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, the game is the game. and That's that's a little bit of It's it. pretty it's, good.
0: Uh, don't shortchange <laughs> yourself. That's pretty good. I mean – countless hours of being around them you're, you're, it's gonna rub off on you somehow um it's uh
3: it's all you know it, well you know it's funny because every there's always a transition right and, and like in in my head it's always it'll be a 2-1 it's always <laughs> yeah. like, you're talking you're talking you're talking <laughs> it'll be a 2-1 like that's the, that's all it's yeah. always a 2-1 for some reason <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's the next pitch
0: yep i hear you man i hear you um Thanks so much for coming on with us. And I know we're gonna either be seeing you, hearing you, reading your words. Um, you know, we're we're gonna be seeing you this baseball season in some fashion and uh really looking forward to it, Sweeney. Congrats on 30 awesome years at the 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 peak of the the radio medium for sports, WFAN, and uh we'll we'll be chatting with you down the road.
3: Thanks so much. You guys are always so kind, it's always fun to see you guys at the park and you know, you, you you've all been great to me, and um, you know, I I, I I we just did what I do best. I ramble about a lot of different things, and I just go on and on until the show's over. So, um, thanks for thanks for letting me do it one more
1: time with you. There you go. Well done, Sweeney. Well done.
0: No, Sweeney tried to, I guess, explain like what could be next for him. I think I I don't know how many people realize like how good of a writer. A guy like Sweeney is because he did write a lot, and I don't know if people realize that. In order to excel on the radio and on television, the biggest skill that you need is writing. Like if you can't write, you're not going to do well in those two areas. So um, it's it's impressive because I really believe he can he can do uh, a lot in. Just journalism, period. And you probably can't, and this is you know, not a knock on people who are older than I, but like when you come from a certain era before this wave of technology swarmed over us, a lot of people haven't adapted. Sweeney's adapted, like he is as versatile as it comes in today's day and age. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does next because he has. A, a great 30 year run. Look, if you're spending 30 years in one place, you're obviously doing something right and doing it really well, but I, I think you're going to have a, a terrific uh, second chapter, my friend. So uh, thanks again for for, uh, for Sweeney for coming on here and uh, talking with us this week. All right, guys, a uh, little Yankee chat to close out the show. And Brian Cashman, like indirectly made headlines this week. And it goes back to like what people um, only hear what they kind of want to hear because the big headline to start the week was that Brian Cashman over the weekend on SiriusXM's uh, MLB Network Radio said that Aaron Hicks is going to be the starting left fielder. And he didn't really say that. Uh, And they touched on this on Talking Yanks earlier this week. He stated that the Yankees are still searching for a left-handed hitting outfielder, but Hicks is expected to be the guy that emerges out of the group that the Yankees have internally if no other move is made. So I'm paraphrasing there at the same time, as it stands right now, you have the same options that you did when you ended last season in left field. I'm wondering, do the Yankees have too many question marks as we approach spring training? Well,
1: some of the question marks are good question marks They're, They're surplus Surplus value of extra infielders. Uh, Certainly, um, D.J. LeMay, who's right in the middle of that and his health. That's going to impact everything. You know, if he's healthy and ready to go, it's like, wow, okay, that that was a huge missing link last year in the playoffs. His bat, talk about contact skills, talk about how good his on-base percentage in the first half of the year was. His profile changed a little bit, more of a higher on-base guy, took more walks. Was a true leadoff hitter for the Yankees. I think for the first half of the year. His numbers are really good. So he's a key component. Obviously, the rookies. Where where are we with with Peraza and Bolpe? What's going on with those guys? Uh, how close are they? Is, is Peraza really the front runner at shortstop? How does that How does that factor in? Josh Donaldson, a third. How's that going to shake down? So obviously, some of these problems are good problems because you have a surplus. The one, the two, two areas of concern. Obviously, are Frankie Montas losing a starter he was going to be your fifth starter and everybody's talking about the the depth of the yankees rotation that took a hit and then obviously left field and and with the internal candidates who's going to emerge from that it's understandable that cashman would say hicks because you don't want to devalue a guy in, in the event that maybe you're trying to trade him or move him you're going to give him every opportunity because his track record before last year actually was fairly good if he's healthy if he's fully healthy Uh, he's still young enough to where he could kind of bounce back. He is a bounce back candidate. So, yeah, it's understandable that Cashman would say that. So, yeah, are there too many questions? They're all different kinds of questions, right? So, yeah, it's interesting. Some of the questions are good questions. Youth, young guys pushing the system, trying to break through. The other question is, is, uh, who's going to emerge from left field? Is there going to be a trade candidate? Is there another big trade coming uh, from Brian Cashman before the season starts? I know they're talking about it. If something makes sense, he'll pull the trigger. But but that's kind of the question right now: is is can a trade be had before the season starts?
2: I don't think there's too many question marks, but it's a good thing when the one thing a lot of people are harping on at this stage of the game is what's going to happen in left field. There's there's not they're not talking about center and right and first and second and catcher and all these other things, or the starting rotation. It's a focus on left field because that's one glaring question mark. As far as the starting rotation goes, going from Frankie Motas as your five to uh, Domingo Herman as maybe your number six, like that's a better option than a lot of teams have in the sixth, seventh, and eighth starters as I've mentioned this before but you know the average team goes through you know 10, 11, 12, 13 starting pitchers in a season. And last year around Major League Baseball, The average team had 38 starts out of pitchers who were not in their top five in starts that season. So you're getting almost an entire rotation's worth of starts out of a spot that is going to be a revolving door. So that's something that I think is going to affect the Yankees a lot less than it would for other teams. As far as left field goes, people jump on, you know, whatever Cashman was saying. And like you said, Shaq, like people hearing what they want to hear. What do you expect the general manager of the team to say about players who are on the team? So remember back in the day when Bubba Crosby was going to be the opening day center fielder for the Yankees. And then he wasn't because they got Johnny Damon. So as until they make a move, the team is what the team is. So yeah, they could be looking for other options, but until then, they have Aaron Hicks and Oswaldo Cabrera in left field.
0: If there is one player in my memory that I can think where he was on the Yankees roster and Brian Cashman was talking about him as if he was not on the roster and that's Sonny Gray from a couple of years ago and that was a a little astonishing kind of made you scratch your head like why is he talking like that about a pitcher who is on his roster yet he's saying you know it it, it wouldn't work here to, to that extent yeah if you have guys on your roster who you're trying to trade you're not gonna talk down about them so um to to your point though, like I think there are levels of question marks here. I think the biggest question marks, James, are the positions that you kind of didn't list list uh, when you were going around the diamond. Like left field's obviously there. I think third base and shortstop are question marks. And anyway you slice it, that's a thirty year lineup. Um, I know I, I do think the off season puzzle is yet to be complete. We still have time, and by off I mean up until opening day. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, as it stands right now three question marks for a third of your lineup. They could shake out whatever they are, but as you know, if I'm asking the question today, uh yeah, those are one too many for me. So uh we'll 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 see what happens here in, in the upcoming weeks. But right now, yeah, you have three big question marks that have uh not been addressed. Shortstop probably to a little less extent because of the options that David mentioned, but third base, left field uh right now unchanged from when you uh closed out the 2022 season. And that's a little head scratching.
1: Valid, valid points all the way around. I still say DJ LeMay use the key. If he's healthy and you he counted on that, that changes the whole equation, you know, in terms of uh third base, second base potential trades, you know, how, how this whole infield thing shakes down. And then also you need, you need some insurance. If you're going to go with a rookie shortstop, you need some insurance. You need some backup because you're not sure, you know, how that's going to pan out. Even though we saw a little bit of Oswald Peraza last year and in, in September, and he looked good, his AAA numbers were pretty solid. But nonetheless, you, you're not real sure what what he's going to look like you know, as an everyday shortstop in the big leagues, even whether whether he gets it or not. I think he's probably the front runner going into spring training. He's going to get a lot of reps there, but you know, it remains to be seen. Unless Anthony Volpe just shows up and. is is a world beater in spring training. I think that's probably a little more of a long shot for him to get the opening day shortstop job, but he's going to get looks. So you got a couple of really primetime rookies that are going to get a shot, but at the same time, you need an insurance policy to back them up in case they're not quite ready
0: opportunities will be had uh, in spring training less than a month away here for the New York Yankees. Uh, That's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Big thanks goes out to Sweeney Murdy for joining us. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do not miss a thing of what we are streaming each and every week. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our terrific producer, Dan Work, this is Justin Shackle. We'll talk to you next week on Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.